Bible and turn with me to Zechariah chapter 6. The Word of God came to Zechariah in one night through a series of visions. And today we look at the eighth and the final vision. It's a vision of four chariots. This one is a bit more straightforward than the other uh, visions we've looked at. Although you might not think a vision of uh, four chariots is all that relevant, my hope is that God might change your mind about that in the next half hour or so. So Remember, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So let's read it together, starting in uh, verse 1 of chapter 6, and see what God is saying to us. Again, he says, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, "'What are these, my lord?' And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them. And the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, behold, those who go to the uh, north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Let's ask the uh, Lord's help in understanding this vision. Father in heaven, I thank you for this vision. I thank you for uh, the... Uh, the, the vision we are getting here of, of your judgment. I thank you that you will one day put this world to rights again. Open our eyes now to behold wonderful things in your word. I pray that this vision might compel us to to live more faithfully to you, more passionately for you and for your kingdom. And that Jesus Christ would be magnified, that his cross would be seen as all the more beautiful to us this morning. And I ask this all in his name. Amen. Well, but before we focus on uh, the mission, the, the, the mission, the vision of of, 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 the, the, of Vision 8 alone, I want to remind you of its place in the bigger storyline of Zechariah's night visions. And perhaps it'd be helpful to, to illustrate this for you 
uh, up on the screen. Uh, what you're looking at uh, there is a diagram of how Zechariah's eight visions fit together as, as one piece. All these visions, they, they hang together. We've, we've noted several times how they interlock with one another. Uh, and, and what they're doing is telling a single story of how God intends to save his people. And you can see this by glancing especially uh, at the first and the last visions, the, the first and the eighth vision there. And you'll notice that both visions mention some patrolling horses. In the first vision, the horses go out as scouts. And uh, in the second vision, they are pulling, uh, I mean, in the, in the eighth vision, they are pulling uh, war chariots. Uh, in the first vision, the horses patrol the earth only to find the nations at rest in their rebellion. And then in the, in the, in the final vision, vision eight, the horses patrol the earth, but this time it's to put an end to the nation's rebellion. And so we might say that in the first vision, God's work to build his kingdom begins, while in the last vision, God's work to build his kingdom finishes. And uh, these bookends are marked, uh, I mean, these, these horses kind of form bookends to all eight of these uh, visions. It, it, it's, it's telling one story of God saving his people and establishing his kingdom of peace on earth. The rest of the visions in between those vision one and eight, they, they're just filling in the details of how this kingdom eventually comes about through the work of his anointed priest and king, both of whom anticipate Jesus Christ. And in general, we might summarize those, those messages that, that are in between visions one and eight. We might, I mean, those visions. We might summarize their message like so. God returns and rescues his people and God sends out and judges evil. You can see this with the, the arrows there on the, the screen. God returns and rescues his people. That's the first movement of the first four uh, visions. And then as a second movement, the next four visions outward, God sends out and judges evil. Our focus the last couple of weeks has been on the second arrow, the, uh, and, and vision eight will actually draw this, this second movement uh, to a close. The main point of vision eight goes something like this, God's kingdom uh, finally prevails through judgment. God's kingdom finally prevails through judgment. When his kingdom goes up, in other words, all other kingdoms must come crumbling to uh, the ground through his coming judgment. That kind of wraps up uh, the end there. So let's look now at some of the details of Vision A. Now that you've, you've seen it in its a larger setting. I want to, I want to lay this out, the, the details here, in three parts uh, before applying some of its uh, theology. And uh, those three parts go something like this. God's warriors seen, God's warriors sent, and God's spirit settled. God's warriors seen, God's warriors sent, 
God's spirit settled. So first, God's warriors seen. In verse 1, Zechariah sees four chariots. And, and each one has horses of a different color uh, pulling the chariot. Red horses pulling one chariot, black horses pulling another, white horses, and, and so forth. Now, our passage doesn't make very much of the colors of each one of these horses. But there is a place in Scripture that at least borrows the same imagery and links each color to a specific role in God's judgment. You see this in Revelation chapter uh, 6, where you've got a, a white, a red, a dappled, and, and, and a pale horse. And, and these horses each have a different role to conquer, to make war, to bring famine, um, and ultimately death. I'm not saying that these horses here in Zechariah play the same role as the horses that we see in Revelation chapter 6. Zechariah doesn't specify that, but it does help us associate these horses with judgment. Okay, And, and that, Zechariah makes very plain, that these horses are coming uh, for judgment. Uh, one way we see this, I already uh, mentioned briefly, uh, where... Um, in relation to chapter 1, whereas in chapter 1, the horses do not have war chariots attached to them. They they go out as scouts to to see what the state of the earth is. Uh, These chariots, I mean, these horses actually do. They, They have chariots attached to them. They're not coming, in other words, to make a report. They're coming to make war. Chariots were the premier war machine of Zechariah's day. They were symbols of power and devastation to uh, the enemy. And just because there are only four of them shouldn't make us think any less of their uh, threatening presence. Uh, Rather, the number four is being used here as it was in visions two and three. Uh, In vision two, we get the four horns If you remember, and the four uh, craftsmen, the four horns stood for the encircling nations, north, south, east, and west, that were, um, that had had scattered Israel. Uh, In vision three, we get the four winds of heaven to which God scattered uh, Israel. In each case, the number four represents the the four points on the compass, north, south, east, and, and west, and thus four chariots would symbolize an army that works throughout the earth. We'll see more of that in a minute. But notice one other significant uh, detail here. These war chariots come out from between two mountains of bronze. And that's really challenging because nowhere else in the Bible do we see two mountains of bronze? So what do we do? If Scripture interprets Scripture, and there's nowhere else to be found, what do we do? Well, there are other things in the Scripture that I think 
um, give us some, some clues of what he's talking about. Uh, there are many indications in Scripture that bronze was viewed as a very strong metal in, in that day. Um, Daniel 2, uh, Daniel chapter 2, verse 39, it even uses bronze to symbolize a mighty uh, kingdom. And perhaps strength is somehow involved here as well. But I think verse 5, if we want to jump ahead just a bit, verse 5 gives us a clue to what these bronze, bronze mountains uh, symbolize. And the angel says there that these war chariots go out after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. After presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. So the bronze mountains have some kind of association with God's heavenly abode, uh, his heavenly dwelling place. And several other clues point us in the same direction, that these mountains are associated with God's heavenly dwelling place. Uh, For example, if you jump back to chapter 2, verse 13, it says there, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. And we talked about there that this is a picture of God as a warrior. He is rising up to make war on his enemies and he's rising up from his heavenly dwelling place. What we're getting here is actually the results of him rising up from his dwelling place. His war chariots are seen here as going out. Also, there's a couple of places in scripture that associate the glory of heaven with sparkling bronze. Ezekiel chapter 1 has these four living creatures who are before God's throne chariot and they sparkle like burnished bronze. Uh, The feet of the glorified Jesus in Revelation chapter 1 sparkle like burnished bronze. And maybe the most convincing clue for me comes in uh, 1 Kings chapter 7. Uh, this is Solomon's temple, uh, which is God's earthly dwelling place at one point in uh, the storyline of Scripture. And, and Solomon's temple has these two massive bronze pillars at the front of Uh, the entryway to the holy place. They're about 27 feet tall and about 18 feet around. And 2 Kings 25 says that they were beyond weight. Now here's where I'm going with that. If the writer of Hebrews tells us that the earthly temple is only a copy of of the heavenly temple, then these two earthly bronze pillars may very well serve as copies of the two heavenly bronze mountains, the entryway into God's dwelling. The bronze mountains, in other words, serve as an 
as a, a symbol to the entryway into God's heavenly dwelling. Does that make sense? That connection? The temple is a copy of what is heavenly. So you go from pillars to mountains in terms of earth and, and, and heaven here. So I think with all these things together, they're all pointing us to, to this, that, that God's warriors are on the move and they are coming out from his presence. They come as agents of judgment. That's God's warriors seen. Second, God's warriors sent. Uh, we've seen that, this, uh, that these chariots come for war and judgment, but, but what is their uh, mission exactly? Well, the angel tells us in verses 5 to 7, uh, the ESV says, um, these are going out to uh, the four winds of heaven I think the New American Standard Version actually has a better translation of verse 5 there. It's actually uh, identifying these four chariot riders. It says, these uh, are the four spirits of heaven going out. So instead of these are going out to the four winds of heaven, it has these are the four spirits of heaven going out. The focus isn't yet on where they're going but on the identity of the war chariots as spirits, which we see in other places uh, in the scripture, Psalm 104, 103, for instance, that uh, these are superhuman angelic hosts. Verse 6, verse six then actually gives the specifics on, on where they're going. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them. And the dappled ones go... Toward the south country. Why single out the north country and the south country? I mean, you got four chariots. Why just north and south? Because Israel's enemies normally attacked from the north and from the south. What's on the west side of Israel, the Mediterranean Sea? What's on the east side, the immediate east side of Israel? Desert. So if you had to attack Israel, you attacked from the north or from the south. And that was the story of Israel's uh, two greatest enemies, Babylon and Egypt. Egypt in the south, Babylon in the east, but was, had a pattern of attacking from the, the north uh, such a pattern that by the time you get to Jeremiah, the north country simply becomes another code word for Babylon. Uh, Zechariah used it this way as well uh, back in chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. If you want to turn there, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 6, he's telling, he tells them to flee from the land of the north. And, uh, and then uh, verse 7 identifies that land. You who dwell with the daughter of Babylon. He's telling them to escape. Get out of Babylon. Babylon is the land of the north. I uh, saw that last week as well in chapter uh, uh, 5 where we talked about the land of, of Shinar, also the north land. The land of Shinar, the capital of that land was Babylon. 
So the North Country and the South Country, what happens here is they actually become types for all the nations who oppose God and oppress God's people. It doesn't matter what, where they're living or where they're attacking from. They become types for all the nations who oppose God and oppress God's people. Well, the mission of these war chariots is to go out and, uh, to judge the nations who oppose God and oppress God's people. They go out with great aggression. Uh, verse 7 uh, pictures them chomping at the bits to uh, destroy God's enemies. They were impatient to go out. So these, these war horses have a, a hunger to go, to go out and, and, and patrol uh, the earth. I mean, that's what you feel when you are in the presence of the Almighty God and you see the way the nations mock Him and live their lives. You feel impatient to go out. Heaven is appalled at those who oppose God and oppress God's people. God's angel armies are ready to wet their sword against the nations, and one day they will. They're being restrained right now, but one day they, God will unleash His holy ones on all His enemies. Notice also that, that uh, it's, it's by His own sovereign, wise timing that He finally releases them to wreak havoc on His enemies. They're impatient to go, but no one moves an inch until He gives the word. Go patrol the earth. And they do. So he sends them out for war, and the scope of their mission, uh, it covers the earth, covers all their enemies. Nobody can escape their judgment. Everybody who opposes God and oppresses God's people will perish wherever they might be hiding. That's God's warriors sent. Third, God's spirit settled. God's spirit settled. This comes in verse 8. But before I read verse 8, I I just want to note that nothing was actually said of the red horses. We got where the black ones were going, where the white ones were going, where the dappled ones were going. Nothing was said of of where the red horses were pulling their chariots. And you'll have to test me on this, but perhaps nothing is said of the red horses, where they go, because the red horses carry the captain of the Lord of hosts, otherwise known as the angel of the Lord. If you turn over to, turn back to chapter 1 in the first vision with me. Uh, if you go down to verse 8 of chapter 1, you see there a man riding on a red horse. Saw so a man riding on a red horse, and then that man is identified... In verse 11, they answered, The angel of the Lord who is standing among the myrtle trees. He's the one on the red horse. And there, um, and there in chapter 1, the angel of the Lord, what happens is he receives all the reports from the other horsemen. And then he cries out with grief, How long? That's his, his cry to the Lord of hosts. 
How long will you have no mercy on the cities of Judah against which you've been angry these seven years? And the, or, and the Lord answers him and says, okay, I'm about to take care of business here. I'm about to bring judgment on the nations. And, uh, and so what we're getting here in chapter 6 now is a picture of the angel of the Lord on, mounted on his war chariots. He has sent the dappled horses and the black horses and the white horses out on their mission. And now another cry goes up of his, but it's not a cry of grief. It is a cry of relief. You see, on many occasions in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord amounts to a theophany. It is God himself manifests He manifests his presence in this angel, and for the angel to speak is for Yahweh to speak. So we get his words then in uh, his cry of relief, not his cry of grief as in chapter 1, but a cry of relief. And what does he say here in verse 8? Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And there's a play on words here. I want to point it out. If you uh, glance back to chapter 5, verse 11. I know I'm having you look all over the place, but this is kind of the final one. You've got to keep reaching back to draw from other places in these visions. Uh, glance back to chapter 5, verse 11. The ESV says, And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. There's the, remember, the basket of wickedness goes out. They put her on her base. Well, This is the same Hebrew word that's used in chapter 6, verse 8 for rest. So the Hebrew could be translated, they will, uh, I mean, the basket will be rested there on her base. And the idea, once you get to chapter 6, verse 8, goes like this. Wickedness may rest in the north country, but God's spirit will not rest until she is destroyed. Wickedness may rest in the north country, but God's spirit will not rest until she is destroyed. So he's speaking about the satisfaction of God's wrath on his enemies. You see, the nations were at rest in their rebellion. This is chapter 1, verse 11. Just like the nations are at rest in their rebellion today. Doing what they want, feeling no, feeling nothing about it, no conviction, no desire to, to repent. They're at rest in their rebellion. And when the nations are at rest in their rebellion, it provokes God's anger. His, his jealousy burns hot against rebels. That's not to suggest that God's spirit is capricious or, or, uh, or unpredictable like many pagan notions of God. It's just to say that God's spirit doesn't tolerate sin in his, uh, against his holy character. And his spirit is only at rest when justice is complete. It's only at rest when his wrath is finally spent on the injustice. Remember, too, from our discussion uh, in chapter 5 that the north country, Babylon, it stands as, a, as the capital of organized rebellion against God. So for God's spirit to be at rest in the north country, 
where the capital of evil is, is for God's spirit to be at rest everywhere. If the capital of rebellion is overthrown, then everything is. And his kingdom alone wins. So what we're getting here is God's spirit is at rest because all of his enemies are defeated. So that closes the narrative of visions 1 to to 8. God's warriors seen, God's warriors sent, God's spirit settled. And each of these details come together to show that God's kingdom finally prevails through the judgment and and destruction of his enemies. But I would be wrong to leave you guessing where this vision is ultimately pointing. Uh, Within the larger council of God's words, we see that it's not pointing merely to the judgment of God's enemies in Zechariah's day. You know, every one of these visions has provided a type, a a foreshadowing, uh, somehow pressing us forward to the consummation of, of God's kingdom. I mean, the rebuilt city... We saw pressing us forward to the new Jerusalem, the rebuilt temple, pressing us forward to Christ and his dwelling in the church. Joshua the high priest, pressing us forward to Jesus our high priest. The curse, pressing us forward both to the cross and the lake of fire. All these connections that we've made along the way, pressing us somewhere in the future. I'd argue argue the same for the picture of these war chariots. They're pressing us to the coming day of God, when God will judge all his enemies with utter finality. I think Isaiah 66 actually helps us make this connection because it talks about the day of God and it links it to his war chariots. Isaiah 66, verses 15 to 16 Behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger in fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment and by his sword with all flesh and those slain by the Lord shall be many. So the chariots come from God's abode Because God himself is a warrior. And he will come to war against the nations. Zechariah himself in chapter 14 continues this same imagery. Uh, On that day Jesus' feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. That lies before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. We talked about two mountains earlier. Interesting here that when Christ shows up, he makes one mountain two, boom, and his presence is dwelling in the middle of this mountain. Mountains. So the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. He's turning the earth, in other words, into his heavenly dwell, dwelling place where his holiness will, will cover the earth. And then it says, then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. What holy ones? These holy ones that we're reading about here in vision eight. The chariot warriors. 
And the judgments that follow are, are horrific. I mean, God's people will dwell securely with him, but the Lord will actually strike all the peoples that wage war against Jerusalem. Their flesh, it says, will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongue will rot in their mouths. If you want to know where Jesus got his imagery of hell, it comes from Zechariah chapter 14 a lot of times. So this suffering will actually be true for everybody who does not know God and who does not trust in Jesus Christ, his only son. But for those who do trust in Jesus, and everybody in this room should trust in him and can trust in him today, the New Testament teaches us that for them, for those who believe... God's wrath that would have been spent on you at the end of history was already spent on Christ at the cross. In the church, we call this the doctrine of propitiation. Big word. The doctrine of propitiation. Propitiation describes God's act to satisfy his wrath against sinners in the death of Jesus. Propitiation describes God's act to satisfy his wrath against sinners in the death of Jesus. Just like the nations pictured here, we can't do anything to satisfy God's wrath. All of us have sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3 tells us. And our sin only provokes God's wrath. God is holy and he can't overlook sin. He is angry with our rebellion against him, just as he is angry with these nations here. We are the Gentile nations, most of us. That he is angry with in this picture, in this vision. Yet... God also chooses to love sinners, to bring sinners into relationship with him. But if he loves sinners, he must love sinners in a way that's consistent with his holiness. That's consistent with his love for what is holy and his hatred for what is evil. And that means he must satisfy his holy anger. He can't sweep sin under the rug, in other words. He must deal out the judgment against our sin. How does he do this? He provides a sacrifice to satisfy his wrath, and that sacrifice is his own son, Jesus Christ. You see, he's not like the pagan gods of the rest of the world that just sit back on their tail, and you've got to do stuff and do stuff and do stuff to try to appease their wrath, and they're never satisfied. What does he do? He gives up his own son to satisfy his own wrath against you. 1 John chapter 4, verse 10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And he sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Or Romans 3, 25. God put Christ forward. Who put Christ forward? Who put Christ forward? God put Christ forward. He gave the gift. He gave the offering. 
He put Christ forward, get this, as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. When Jesus died on the cross, he drank the cup of God's wrath for those who believe. He became their propitiation, satisfying all of God's wrath before the day of the Lord comes. And that is good news because it means we have an escape. We have an escape. Everybody who does not believe will have to suffer under God's wrath at the end of history, but they will never satisfy it. They will never satisfy his wrath because they will always be sinners and they will always hate God and they will never be able to drink the cup. Revelation 14 says, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever and they have no rest day or night. Their consciences will agonize them day and night. But everybody who does believe, Christ already satisfied it all. There's no wrath left for those who believe. Amen? That's what the cross is about. God's spirit is already at rest with your soul, believer. He's so at rest with your soul, he's pleased to dwell inside of you. He's pleased to make you his holy dwelling. Because God satisfied his wrath against you at the cross, he is now 100% for you forever. And that means you don't have to exhaust yourselves with a thousand little rituals every day to try to please, I mean, to try to appease God. Not only is your sin too great for you to appease God's wrath, you'll never have the perfection or the ability to do it. But there is one man who didn't have any sin in him to provoke God's wrath and who also does have the ability to serve as your wrath-bearing substitute because he was in himself God. And his name is Jesus. Jesus bore God's wrath in your place when he died on the cross and God then raised him from the dead to prove that it was finished. So one of the first points in applying the theology of Vision 8 is this. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from the wrath to come. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved from the wrath to come. I, I don't assume that everybody in this room is saved. I don't know the true state of your soul or whether every person here knows what it means to be totally and forever free from God's condemnation. Only God knows if your lips are moving this morning while your heart is still far from Him. But I do know that the Spirit gave me words to speak and you words to speak to those who don't know God. And one of them is this from Acts 16, 13. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Jesus is your only hope to escape judgment. He is your only hope to escape these 
chariot riders. God's kingdom will eventually prevail through judgment. The Son of Man will come with power and great glory, and He will send out His angels with a loud trumpet call, Matthew 24 says, to gather His elect and to punish those who do not obey the gospel. Today is the day of salvation. Believe on Jesus and you will no longer be a child doomed for wrath, but a child doomed for glory. I mean, destined for glory. There's no doom of glory. And if you do believe in Jesus, celebrate the freedom that comes with a statement like this in 1 Thessalonians 1.10. Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. Or a statement like this from Romans, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's reason to sing and to rejoice and to praise God and give thanks. But I think there's even more for us to consider as believers when it comes to thinking of, on God's final judgment as we've seen in vision 8. This, this vision becomes quite relevant for our daily walk with Christ too. Not only is it driving us to repent and put our faith in Christ, it's also telling us of how we should spend our days until the day of judgment comes. For instance... It teaches us that we cannot be complacent in a world coming to judgment. We cannot be complacent in a world coming to judgment. Yes, our condemnation is over in Christ. But the world's condemnation isn't. Vision 8 reminds us that the Lord is sovereign over the rebellious nations. His kingdom will finally prevail through judgment... And judgment changes everything about our day-to-day living. If judgment isn't coming, we should just be like those in in 2 Peter who say, Where is the promise of the Lord's coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they are from the beginning of creation. Or like those in 1 Corinthians, Let's just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Who cares? But Zechariah's vision guarantees that judgment is coming. And Revelation 6 actually takes the imagery even further. Jesus has already broken the first four seals. And with each seal has unleashed the four horses to conquer and spread war and famine and death. We see these now. The world is already experiencing the tremors of Jesus Christ's return in judgment. And that means the world that sits in rebellion against God is on its way down and God's kingdom is on its way up. So the point is live for for his kingdom, not for this one that's going away. And the New Testament writers go all over the place with that kind of theology. They take that theology and they get it into the believer and into the church's lives in a hundred different ways. And I'll give you just a few examples. God's coming judgment motivates a life that pleases God. 2 Corinthians 5. 
Verses 9 and 10. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Christ. Why? For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. God's judgment should motivate holy living. 2 Peter chapter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be, church, in lives of holiness and godliness? God's judgment compels us to persuade others to believe in Christ. You see, complacency in evangelism is one way to test how much you really believe that judgment is actually coming. 2 Corinthians 5.11 For we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So as believers, we know we've escaped, but we know this day of judgment is coming. And therefore we go and we persuade others. You've got to believe. You've got to believe. You've got to come to Christ. He is your propitiation. God's judgment teaches us not to neglect meeting together. How about that? It's a reason to gather on Sunday morning or other times throughout the week. Hebrews chapter 10. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the day, he says, he goes on to explain is the day of judgment. God's judgment inspires us to offer God acceptable worship with our lives, with reverence and awe. Hebrews chapter 12 Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? For our God is a consuming fire. These are just a few examples. But again and again, the the New Testament uses God's judgment to move Christians out of complacency and into passion for God's kingdom. Our theology of judgment is incomplete incomplete if it does not move us to live for Christ and give up everything for Him. Part of the gospel is that God's kingdom will prevail through judgment. And this should motivate us on a daily basis to passionate living for God's kingdom alone. Another way the theology of this vision should hit us. Our hope for justice can't rest in human means or institutions. Our hope for justice cannot rest in human means or institutions. You see, this vision came to Israel 19 years after uh, Persia sacked their greatest enemy at the time, Babylon... Uh, And King Cyrus and later on King Darius, I mean, they showed Israel a whole lot of favor in bringing them back, giving giving them the stuff they needed to build the temple. 
So Cyrus and Darius, uh, Darius provided lots of material. Uh, they, they showed the Jews favor, but see that God doesn't give them a vision of the Persian government. He doesn't give them a vision of the Persian armies or the Persian kings or another leader that's coming like Cyrus. God gives them a vision of himself and his armies and his kingdom. Persia couldn't, may have been used by God, but it couldn't bring ultimate justice on God's enemies. Persia was just as broken and corrupt and unjust and fickle as Babylon, as was Greece, as was Rome centuries later, and as is America today. Could it be that God is using the current state of America to expose where your trust ultimately lies? Could it be that God has designed some of the uncertainties before us so that our trust does not rest in our political conservatism, but in Christ alone? The current uncertainties surrounding our national security, surrounding our economy, surrounding whether our justicism will apply Justice system will uphold the Constitution surrounding our future leadership. Could these uncertainties in some strange providence be gifts to teach us that human progress is still broken progress and that human systems won't last forever and that human institutions cannot bring the justice and peace that the world needs? We don't need political conservatism. We need the powerful Christ. We don't need rush. We need righteousness. So let this vision keep your trust in the right place. In Christ alone. Which leads me to one last way we might apply the theology of this vision. More positively, our hope must rest... We just saw what it shouldn't rest in. Our hope must rest in the God who fights for his oppressed people. Our hope must rest in the God who fights for his oppressed people. God was asking Israel to do the work of his kingdom in the midst of hostility. At this stage in his kingdom, the temple had to be rebuilt. But even though Persia had given them some Relief for a time, they still experienced threats from other foreign leaders or even some of their own uh, leaders further down the chain of command. So they build the temple a little bit, get scared and stop. Build the temple a little bit, get scared and stop. This vision comes to encourage them in the midst of their oppression. This vision tells them that while their enemies may seem large and powerful, God is bigger and better. He will judge and he will win. He will not forsake them or overlook the wrongs that are done to them. And the same is true for his people now. God has saved you and given you a mission to carry out among oppressive people. Jesus said in Matthew 24, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. Uh, Or Luke 6, 22. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you. 
and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. You see, there's this expectation that Jesus' <clears throat> Jesus's disciples will be oppressed. They will suffer unjustly just as he suffered unjustly. Perhaps there are ways you have suffered unjustly. Perhaps you've experienced persecution for your faith. You feel the loss when you read of your brothers and sisters suffering loss. You feel the pain when enemies of the cross threaten and capture and torture other Christians. Your cry goes up like the martyrs in Revelation 6. How long, O Lord, before you judge and avenge our blood? This vision of God's judgment says to that Christian that God will fight for his oppressed people. Or maybe you haven't necessarily suffered injustice for your Christian faith, but you've suffered other forms of injustice simply as a result of living in a fallen and corrupt world. Maybe you've suffered injustice because of your economic status. Maybe you or your neighbors suffer oppression because of the color of their skin. Maybe there have been things done to you physically or emotionally or sexually that should not have been done to you. Again, none of these things are necessarily unique to Christians, but God still sees all kinds of injustice. And for the Christian, he will make it all right. He will see to it that all wrongdoings are accounted for and judged with perfection. In the same way he knew the oppression of his people in Zechariah's day, he knows your oppression too. And we can take every confidence that he will bring it to an end. As Romans 12 would encourage us, we don't have to respond to our oppression with vitriolic attitudes and violence in the street or even sharp jabs on Facebook. That's an implication of Romans 12 and have Facebook in Paul's day. But as Romans 12 would encourage us, we don't have to return evil for evil. Rather, we leave room for the wrath of God For God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And that's what Vision 8 teaches us precisely. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer?